Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. I'm talking to Axel Howerton, Canadian sensation, as I like to call him. Um, this is a dude who who review has reviewed all of my films. I think he has the distinction, one of the few distinctions of having reviewed all of my films, and he um, uh, he did because I sent in uh, uh, cold submissions back when he used to be uh, a writer for um, and and uh, an editor, I believe, right? Correct. Of, of a uh, a site that was there was a, a major publication in Canada, uh, online publication in Canada called I Crave DVD, which has since turned into the I Crave Network. Um, and I, I I sent it just as like an indie guy with an indie movie. Uh, a friend of mine, Richard Taylor, had made a movie called The Misled Romance of Cannibal Girl and Incest Boy, and they reviewed that. So I figured, well, they'll definitely review I Need to Lose Ten Pounds and Abo the Fucking Hugh Monkey. So I, uh, I I sent that in and um, and he dug what I was doing. He even dug the first one. I need to lose ten pounds, which is like you know my my. Uh, it was simply an exercise in completing a film. Uh, so since then we've we've established. You know we we talk all the time. I've written. Uh, you know I wrote a piece for uh, the I Crave Network when that first launched, and I'm I'm just really happy to have him on my podcast. Thanks, Axel. Not at all. Thank you, sir. Uh, so I'm 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 looking on the web page here. Um, and you've got a nice little write-up about yourself. Uh, you refer to yourself as a badass dad, a proud husband. I know you got uh, some kids. That I do. But you're a fiction writer, and you still edit for I Crave. You're still an editor for I Crave DVD, no? Uh, mostly in name. I still do. I still do some stuff on there once in a while. And when something really irresistible comes up that I need to tell the world about, or uh, you know, if there's a special project that uh, Shane, the uh, the owner of the company needs done were you uh so you grew did you grow up in alberta yep born and bred and uh and and you were a uh, i mean were you into the you know into media in general were you a writer what did you kind of uh, uh what what attracted you oh hell i've been a, a movie freak since longer than i can remember i think one of my very first memories is waking up at the drive-in uh when star wars first came out oh, wow. 1977 i would have been like three waking up in the drive-in Darth Vader looming overhead. By the time I was five, I'd seen like Saturn three, the shining. I mean, was there any one filmmaker where you were like, you know, that you really flocked to their stuff or was it just kind of everybody? Uh, at that age, no, I was just, you know, I didn't even get the concept that people actually made movies. Was there ever an age where you started to muse about either like, Oh, there's a, there's a process behind which this film gets made. Or did you ever think, Hey, I'd like to try that too. Oh, yeah, I was a huge geek, man. By junior high, I knew, like, every director, every writer, every cinematographer. When I was in high, I think I had something like 3,000 VHS tapes. Mostly, you know, recorded. You know, I read copious amounts of books from the time I could read. And, um, you know, I was into, like, I had all the Starburst magazines and American cinematographer and stuff from when I was, like, 10 years old. I was into that stuff, famous monsters, all that stuff. And, you know, I remember spending whole summers inside watching, you know, Godzilla movies, Doctor Who and 
Indio Morricone movies at uh, one o'clock in the morning when I was like eight years old. You must have been a big Fangoria guy. Oh, yeah. Did you ever want to take a crack at making them yourself? Are, are you a maker? I was. Uh, in high school, we had a broadcasting class that I kind of took over. We had a kind of a passive uh, teacher. It was his first year taking over the course. First year, we had the old crusty guy that, you know, all we could do was do radio shows and, you know, cut promos and stuff. And and then the next year, we got this new guy, first year doing the program, brand new, couple of video cameras. And we just kind of ran roughshod over and took the cameras, disappeared out into the city. And, uh, yeah, we made, uh, let's see, we had Slash Part 12, which was uh, your standard slasher. So little horror movies basically throughout, like, high school. Yeah, Slash 12, Slash 13, Zombies with four exclamation points. Um, the Tale of Ed the Killer Farmer. Do you still have these movies? Did you, like, hang on to them? Some of them. I actually, um, if you go on my YouTube page, there's actually a couple of trailers I recut from Slash 13 just, you know, for shits and giggles for uh, for my friends from back then because we kind of had a little mini reunion a couple of years ago. So I recut it on the computer and, you know, cut out a lot of the static and stuff and tried to clean it up and, and made copies for everybody and, you know, cut a couple of trailers with, like, Danzig music and stuff. And that went over pretty well. But talk about how you transitioned from being kind of like a complete, you know, film dork into, you know, eventually doing writing for media and 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 uh, and working for for one of Canada's biggest review sites. I've always kind of been into that and I've done things here and there, you know, had a few articles here and there in local papers and stuff. And uh, when I went to university, I was trying to get into film school, but the, the film school here, they didn't want to take 18 year olds right out of high school. Yeah, They want to go off and, you know, do a couple of years of university or work experience or whatever. And, you know, I went in for an interview and the guys I was in there with were these like 32 year old Polish immigrant, you know, serious filmmakers that had already made a bunch of social dystopia kind of stuff. How does that work with I mean, here, like you could go to a four year college and it would also be a film school. Well, they have that now. But back then they didn't really have film courses at the university. Yeah. They had uh, you had to go to it's called SAIT. It's uh, Institute of Technology, which technically is a university, but it's it's more technical classes. And they had a, a program that was for broadcasting in general. And then you uh, majored in film or radio or um, production. But like I say, they didn't want to let in a kid fresh out of high school. They wanted you to have more experience. So. So I went off to university and then I just kind of got waylaid by that. You know, I got into going to be a kindergarten teacher for a while. And then I got into uh, English lit, figured I'd be a poet because the chicks were into that. Yes. Eventually had to go and get a real job. But uh, at the same time, I was still doing stuff here and there around town and, you know, little articles, music reviews. Um, then at the explosion of the, uh, the old net right around the turn of the century, I was trying to set up my own uh, blog page to uh, write about movies. I was uh, a theater manager and a projectionist at the time, so kind of had the in on all the uh, new releases. But uh, I got in contact with uh, Shane McDonald, who runs iCreate, because I, I was just commenting on some of the stuff they were putting up. And he was looking for writers, and uh, he chatted me up. I jumped on board, and, you know, at the time, it was things were just starting. Like, there was basically up here, there was us and Joe Blow. Yes. So we got pretty big pretty fast. I mean, for most of the time, it was just Shane and I. And, you know, we 
started out where we were doing, you know, three or four reviews a month. And then that just ballooned. He got some studios on board. They were sending us everything that they had. We'd get 50 Universal titles a month. Till it got to the point where we were literally getting a thousand movies a month that he would ship up half of and uh, ship out to Alberta for me to watch. How did he get the studios on board? He just, uh, you know, went to the studios and chatted them up. I mean, at the time, it was that whole Wild West was just starting and there wasn't uh, a shit ton of sites out there that were covering this stuff, especially up here. You know, down in the States, there was, yeah, 10 or 15 big sites. And up here, there was two. Yeah. It was first come, first serve in, a, in sort of a way. Pretty much. And being close to Toronto, he was able to go in. He'd go into Toronto. He'd, you know, talk to Warner Brothers. Uh, Warner was a big su- supporter of us. Um, they'd have him at all of the, the quarterly events that they'd have. They kind of co-sponsored us to get down to Comic-Con in 2007. There was uh, a lot of stuff going on. And he basically just went to the studios and said, look, we've got this studio. We've covered this. Here's some of our articles. Here's, you know, this is our traffic. And at the time, it was pretty impressive, I guess. So but they jumped on there and started piling us under with all their stuff. Yeah. Talk, so talk about that. Uh, I mean, like going from like, hey, this is great. I'm watching three, four movies a month and, you know, it's fun to write about them and, and review them. And then suddenly trying to keep up with, you know, a few dozens and then finally 500 between, you know, 500 each. At first it was beautiful. It was like, oh, hey, I got the, you know, Matrix set from Warner's for, for free. Yeah. I got this and I got that and I'm getting all these, you know, movies and I'm, you know, doing these reviews and I'm talking to these directors and cinematographers and you know i i got to interview um jeffrey combs and uh Tura satana and all these people that were you know to me were like legends but eventually yeah it got to where you're getting just everything and some of the stuff obviously is just you know direct and third-hand garbage and you know then i was starting to get stuff sight unseen from indie guys that hang on a second yeah no problem no yes get in there sorry it's the sounds of adulthood ladies and gentlemen yeah he he, he just wants to know if he can play despicable me too (laughs) it's a great movie by the way i just saw it it was like we saw it yesterday morning and so now it's all all day yesterday all day today running around the living room screaming lipstick taser (laughs) that's awesome so um, if you guys were expanding your your you know your traffic why not expand uh uh, the staff, although I guess that's presuming that you were oh, we getting did. Yeah, we most definitely did. But, um, you know, it was hard to find at that time. There was so many people jumping on board that thing and nobody really had training. You know, Shane himself, you know, he just really liked movies and he, you know, started up a site and it started getting a lot of traffic and he just kind of went with it. Luckily, he's, you know, he's a smart guy and he he figured out what he had to do to keep it building. You know, I was really the only one with any training or experience and there was so many people jumping onto the internet around then you know in the early to mid thousands you know they really had no idea what they were doing and everybody thought that they could just fake it yeah and i've had a lot of people compare my stuff back then to lester bangs which you know was a huge turn on to me once once i'd really discovered lester bangs i didn't really know much about him at first but People were comparing me to Lester Banks and that, you know, it seemed so relaxed and it seemed so 
loose and informal, but still covered all the bases. But everybody else was trying to jump in there and do the same thing. And they were just coming off, you know, snarky and, and unreliable. People didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't bother researching things. And then there was, you know, these guys that we'd bring in because they tell us that they had experience doing this, doing that. They'd done this magazine, that magazine. And we'd bring them in and they'd give us, you know, four paragraph reviews. They didn't talk about any of the technical specs of the movies mm -hmm. or any of the other things that we were kind of requiring at the time, but they would do four paragraphs in the movie section, which was all bunk talking about themselves, talking about Lord knows what, and not really getting to the movie or how well it was made or how, you know, how good the, uh, the acting was, how deaf the directing was. They were just, you know, stabbing in the dark and thinking that their personalities were going to carry these reviews. And for the most part, you know, while, yes, you need the personality to keep people coming back, you still need to understand what you're writing about. Yeah, and, and it was a, I mean, the it was right there in the title at the time. It was I Crave DVD. So were you, um, you know, did you put a kind of an emphasis on these are DVD releases, this is how well the DVD was produced, or, you know, this is how good yep. of a DVD this is, let alone a movie? The, the initial setup from Shane was specifically just DVDs. Right. Because that was the new format when he started the site. Um, you know, it was a big deal and it was, you know, DVDs were the shit, right? They had all the extra material that you didn't get on VHS all the behind the scenes stuff, the Easter eggs, all that stuff. Yeah. It kind of changed, so, it kind of changed the relationship between the viewer and the filmmaker. I feel like that was the first time that you ever really got to hear a commentary track on almost, almost every film it seemed. Absolutely. And for, I mean, for me, for the, the kind of movies that, that I'm into a lot of the time, it was, you know, there was my film school that I didn't get before, probably a better film school. Absolutely. Because I could go and I could watch however many Kurosawa movies I wanted and watch the commentaries from, you know, these legendary critics and, you know, see the behind the scenes stuff, the material that they had archived from the 50s. For the same price of the VHS. Exactly. Right. You know, and I could go and pick up all of the Ed Wood movies in one box. Yeah. That to me was, you know, that was the greatest thing ever. Do you still have a giant DVD collection like I do, like a, a big stupid wall of DVDs? Shit, I have, I have giant Rubbermaid bins piled up in my storage unit that are full of the. I probably have ten thousand DVDs. Holy shit! <laughs> I have, uh, I have a couple thousand in, you know, in my house that are there that we, you know, are there to watch all the time. Yeah. And that, I've got yeah buckets upon buckets of more of them that you know I watched once and yeah well you know. Might as well keep it. Yeah, it's 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 almost. I mean, like, uh, uh, there must be something that appeals to us about like maintaining a library or something like that. Oh, I'm I'm a terrible terrible completist. Yeah. Yeah. If I if I have one of something and there's five more, I have to have those other five. Even if you don't give a fuck about the other five, like even if you, sure. you know, and there's like uh, <laughs> some collections I've got where I've got to get the most obscure, ridiculous, you know stuff from that director or that actor or whatever just because i have everything else and it, and it it could be just absolute crap and i'll never watch it but i still gotta have it so that kind of that love for um you know for underground and for obscurity i mean that really uh i i bet that benefited the site at the time it certainly ben benefited filmmakers like myself and richard um, because you you kind of got it you kind of got what we were going for and it was you know a large publication being able to talk, to speak to that. So now you accepted cold submissions. It seemed like you were just like, yeah, send your stuff and we'll try to review it. Is that kind of how it went? 
Well, once once we got big enough, then word just kind of got out, and I I had kind of taken it upon myself to not to aggrandize myself, but I was kind of thinking of myself as you know the champion of the little guy. Yes, I I had always wanted to do that, and just didn't have the you know at the time didn't have the resources for it. I went and helped other people, you know, friends of mine that were filmmakers. I'd go and help out on set, and I'd you know pop up in little cameos in these film school projects and stuff. But getting involved with the DVD review part of it and seeing how few places were taking guys like you seriously. Yeah. I kind of took it upon myself to, to really get into that end of it and try and push that stuff and try and introduce the mainstream crowd to this stuff that, you know, honestly, a lot of times is way better than the crap that the studio is pushing. Yeah, it's true. Or at least it it's new and it and it and it excites you. And um, not the same old shit. You know, it's not Nicolas Cage in the umpteenth action movie where all he does is you know run around and blow shit up. I just saw you know just last night I saw Pacific Rim and and it was something that I noticed everybody was so pumped about probably because of Guillermo and Guillermo is a really interesting director and so I went to go see it with 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 somewhat of you know of a high expectation and. Um, and it really was, it was by the books. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was the, it hit those same cliches that just about every film hits. And it, it really kind of, it's, you know, it's one of those experiences while you're sitting there watching it being like, you know, I, I think I would rather watch something crappy or, or lo-fi and exciting, uh, than, than this, this kind of over-processed polished thing that I'm staring at. Yeah. And back, back then that was, you know, it was just coming out. You know, there was the hardcore trauma heads that would buy everything on DVD and go to the store. Like up, we, up here, we had uh, a place called A&B Sound. Yep. They had this huge facility downtown where they had like a whole upper level that was just DVDs. And they had like every goddamn trauma release there was. And I would go down there every week and pick up whatever trauma stuff they had, you know, like anything. Anything I could get my hands on just because I'd always loved that shit when they had it at the, at the little mom and pop video stores on VHS. And now I could actually have all of that stuff in my own collection, you know? So then I took it upon myself, like I said, and I would seek out some of those those guys like Rolf Konevsky. Some guys were, were sending stuff themselves, like you and Richard and Scott Phillips. I got, uh, I forget, I think Tempe Films. Uh, they had put out Scott Phillips' Stink of Flesh which is like the greatest zombie movie ever made. Oh, wow. I haven't seen it. Well, I'd say outside of the original Dawn of the Dead, it's one of the best zombie movies I've ever seen. And it cost them about, uh, I don't know, like 50 bucks. Wow. It's probably more like five grand, but still. So, you know, I got this thing and I watched it and I was just blown away. So I contacted Scott Phillips and I said, hey, man, I just, you know, I just saw your movie. You know, they sent it to me for review. I'm blown away. This is amazing. You know, what else have you got? We we ended up being, you know, best buddies, and he sent me all of his stuff, and I reviewed it all on there. And uh, I was pushing it whenever I could and trying to get as much exposure for him as I could. And that led to, you know, other stuff. Like I wrote the – we were both so into old, uh, you know, 70s-style album liner notes and stuff that – when he put out his next movie, Gimme Skelter, I actually did a press kit and I did the uh, I did the DVD notes on the back of the DVD as you know 70s album liner notes. That was the way it went back then. It was you know it was pretty wide open and people were cool about it. I got emails from cinematographers and directors and saying hey you know thanks for actually 
taking the time to actually watch our movie because nobody else seems to be doing it. Yeah, you got to be that guy for a long time. It, uh, I kind of feel that pain now as a, as a fiction writer because it's the same thing now with with ebooks and stuff that it was with movies back in the in the aughts. You know, there's so much shit out there and so many people just jumping on there and doing it themselves that it's almost impossible to get serious consideration most of the time. Yeah, people have a hard time trusting the, you know, that that they should give it a try. And I'm sure that I'm sure you ran into that as a reviewer where it was like, well, you know, I I watch like it's part and parcel with the job. You watch a lot of crap, but you watch a lot of great stuff. Oh, exactly. And that's the same thing now with the with the books, right? There's literally millions of choices out there and you just kind of look at it and it's this vast ocean of covers and author names and you just kind of you're boggled and you don't know what to to pick. Books have to be tough because it's you know it's even a bad movie you sit there for two hours and it's over but a book really kind of there's there's more of an active component for the reader of of cracking it open and and processing the words rather than letting the dvd player run the movie you know well exactly and it's a it's a lot harder to tell right away whether there's actually any craft involved you know? yeah right right movies, you can pretty much tell two minutes in okay this is going to be a piece of garbage yep you know or hey this you know might be starting slow, but there's still some potential. I'm still, you know, invested that little tiny bit that I want to not get up off the couch and turn it off. Yeah. With the book, sometimes, you know, you get all the way to the end before you realize, wow, that is 12 hours. I'm never getting back. Exactly. And, and you, you know, you're, you keep, I guess you're right. It's like with a, with a film, at least you do have production value as, as a signifier of, uh, of what, you know, what's in store. Um, or performances or whatever, but yeah, language is different. You know, language on a page is different. Uh, it takes a while to see if it's going to go someplace interesting. Yeah, and that, I mean that was the problem back then too, right? There was so much stuff coming in. Eventually, it got to the point where, as I said before, we were getting you know a thousand movies in a month, and you know we had a couple extra people here and there, but they you know a lot of people weren't reliable. They weren't putting their reviews in on time. They weren't reviewing the stuff that we send. So. For the most part, it was Shane and it was me. And then, you know, I kind of got fed up with it after a while and decided that I wanted to, you know, tell my own stories. So, yeah. So, so let's talk, let's talk about that. Well, I just started, started kind of sliding back into writing fiction. I'd, I'd done some, you know, early on when I was, you know, in my early 20s and never really tried to take it anywhere. I had a couple of stories published in a couple of places. You know, I'd had articles and stuff published, you know, from when I was, uh, 12 until I was in university and, you know, did stuff for the, the school paper and, you know, crap like that. But, um, but it never really compared to even the crappy movies that I made in high school, you know, that it was still the world that I was creating. I may have been ripping off every other slasher movie that there was, but I was doing it my own way. It was still, yeah, exactly. So I started trying to seriously give fiction a try and I, you know, I entered a couple of contests, wrote a couple of little stories Met a few other writers, you know, got chatting, whatever. Then I uh, I got mixed up with a place called Dark Moon Digest. Just starting out, and they were looking for editors and and uh, contributors and stuff. So I uh, I did four issues that I was uh, basically a slush pile reader. You know, that kind of ended up being the same thing as the the DVD gig had turned out, where it was just so much stuff being piled on. It was 
you know, most of it questionable and just kind of wears you right out. And I was finding it was kind of impacting my own stuff because I was getting too much influence from, you know, having to read 50 stories in a month by other people. It's kind of hard to filter that out and keep working on my own stuff. So, so just kind of, you know, take it when I can and try and get some time to crank some things out. I'd written this book, Hot Sinatra, that, uh, you know, again, I was kind of trepidatious to put it out anywhere and get any input back on it like any beginning writer would. But a lot of my author friends had checked it out and they said it was pretty good and thought I should put it out there. So I put it into a contest. It didn't rate, but then uh, the first publishing place that I put it into, they loved it and they wanted it. So now it's out there. Yeah, and to, so you uh, you you self distributed that. You got it uh, into a few contests, and now you you sell it, or did somebody else pick it no, up? No, it's uh, it's published by Evolve Publishing, which is uh, like they're based in Georgia. They got a pretty large roster right now. They've got some pretty established authors like um, Emily Chan, uh, Angela Scott. Had a good editor and didn't really have to do too much story wise. Just crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Came out in January. It's the problem now, like I say, there's so much stuff out there, it's hard to find that foothold. Right. So, you know, it's not doing huge business, but it's it's starting to make a little mark. And everybody that's read it has really enjoyed it from what I've heard. I haven't had any really negative feedback. I had one person that, you know, despite me explaining, I wanted what I wanted to do is I wanted to write, a, you know, like a dime novel from the 30s, like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett kind of stuff, but update it without doing what they do in movies, right? Like you get something like Give Them Hell, Malone, or, but you know, they'll take, they either they set it in period or they modernize it, but everybody still talks like they're in a 30s bogey movie and everybody's still walking around in fedoras and suits and, and whatever, but they're, you know, but they're all talking like 30s tough guys. Yeah, they have iPhones, but it's that, it's that noir 30s style. Exactly. So I wanted to try and get away from that as much as I could while still paying homage to those stories that I really love. I think I came up with a pretty good convention for that as I have the main character who is kind of a throwback and he still wears the fedoras and whatever, but he's, you know, he's covered with tattoos. He, you know, swears all the time. He has, a, you know, he's a recovered alcoholic, but he, he's a private detective and he wears the hat and he walks the walk because he's trying to emulate his grandfather who was one of those guys. Oh, okay. So there's actually a reason for it. So rather than just have a guy who just, you know, randomly acts like Humphrey Bogart. Yep. You know, here's a guy who looks up to Humphrey Bogart. Exactly. And I mean, I'm one of those guys myself, you know, I have my grandfather's old fedora that I put on when I'm going out on the town. I got, you know, hats galore. I like to dress it up a little snappy 30 style. I got a pocket watch, you know, shit like that. (laughs) Just because I, I appreciate those, the memory of those things, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, did you find did you find writing it to be kind of a fulfilling experience? I mean, and, and the publishing of it, or has it been kind of a, you know, how 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 was your first run at at writing a fiction novel? It is a lot different than a short story, you know. Like sometimes I'll I can come sit outside on a Friday night and crank out a short story in you know two three hours, and it's more or less done. I go back over it a couple of times clean stuff up, move a couple things around. 
But, you know, it all comes out in a flash. It's preformed in my mind, and it's easy to just put it out there, and it's done. The novel, there's so many threads, so many characters, so many traits that you have to keep track of and not cross back over. So you have to keep people interested. You have to keep the characters either they have to stay the same or they have to have a logical reason for progressing the way that they do. Right. So that when you get to the end, you're not, well, why the hell would that guy do that? Doesn't sound that different from short filmmaking versus feature filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. But even more than, than feature filmmaking, even if you're making a two-hour movie, you're still, it's two hours, right? You could sit there and go through it in two hours right? and see the problems and tweak it. With that novel, if you want to see the, if you're in chapter 30 and you need to go back and find out, you know, I can't remember, was he left-handed or right-handed? you got to go back through those other 30 chapters if you don't have a, a steel trap memory. You have to go through those other 30 chapters looking for any reference to whether he has a whether he's left-handed or right-handed. So do you, do, do you come up with a uh, like a system by which you can easily and quickly look up, like, that's the first time I introduce this detail, and that way you're not, like, constantly having to reread tons of pages to get to that? Uh, to, to be honest, if I wasn't lazy and stupid, I probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm just wondering, I've because I've never written anything long form like I, that. I know I know people that that do do that, and they keep these exhaustive records of you know character traits and and plot points and everything else. But uh, you know, I I'm kind of organic in that creation. So you know, I lay out the the basic plot line. I lay out the main characters and the, the just kind of the vagaries of their character like you know whether you know somebody's a, a tough guy or a little effeminate or you know as a soft spot for kids or dogs or right. you know things things that would just kind of out of those character shows just like you do in filmmaking little things that give you that that little moment that gives you the whole character i try to keep track of those things and then i just try and let the the story outside of that and the description and everything just kind of unfold on its own and just you know come to me as i go along which Admittedly, it causes trouble when you have to go back and track through and make sure that nothing really contradicts itself. At the same time, it keeps it fresher for me. I mean, it took me three years, all told, to write that book. So, so would you? Uh, I mean, I've, I see that you've you did uh, a mini anthology, you did a, a number of short stories, but would you would you go back and do the novel thing anytime soon, or are you going to let that kind of be what it is for a little while and then maybe return to it? To be honest, I, I've been I've been kind of blocked up for a while. I haven't really written much of anything this year so far what have you been busy with i did some i did some horror scripts some short horror scripts for uh, a guy in town kind of interconnected uh, i think the working title was thrilogy three short films that work independently but if you watch them in a row it tells one story right and and it's a you know cult demon worship craziness and then i you know i've done a couple little things here and there yeah it's kind of up in the air with the i've got three or four different novel projects outlined, ready to go that I just haven't decided which one I really want to put that time into right away. I, I know that you're still, well, you said by name only, but it, at least I think probably about two, two, three, two or three years ago, you, um, you know, I crave network opened up. So it opened up beyond DVD and you asked me to, uh, or you asked all of your filmmaker friends to submit uh, uh, bits of writing. So, so what's happened to I crave since then, and what's your involvement been? Uh, well, like I said, once in a while something comes up that I just I'm really compelled to write up. I really have an opinion on it, or I really want to put it out there and ex get it some exposure, like your last movie. Yeah, you were very nice to me. So once in a while I do stuff on there. I mean, really, it's kind of 
fallen quiet for a while. Shane hasn't really been doing much on there either, but uh, it's always it's always ripe for a return. Yeah. So who runs the farm while you guys aren't doing anything? Well, I, I mean, Shane's still in charge, but yeah. you know, there's just not a lot of stuff posted. I think if you go on there, you know, there's probably not much up there from the last year or so. Oh, really? So it's kind of like a, something you dip back in and out of. Yeah, it's still there. So when uh, when he's ready and and I feel the need. When you reviewed Sexually Frank, you you posted it on both iCrave and on AxelHowerton.com. So obviously, your website is something that's kind of important for you to maintain as well. You kind of let some of that reflect there. Well, I, I'm sure you probably know as a, as a filmmaker, you have to you still have to have a presence on the web. Yeah, absolutely. To facilitate when you do have something to put out there, you have a platform to kind of hub it from, and um, so. AxelHowerton.com is just whenever I have anything going on, that's where I put it up. So if I have a review from somewhere, or an article from somewhere, and and they're okay with me reprinting it there, then it goes up there more or less just for archival purposes. Yep. And there's there's stuff going back ten years on that site. You know, the idea being to kind of keep everything that you've ever done kind of in one place. So um so we know that we can point people to axelhowerton.com is there anything else you want to you know tell people to check out or or to read or uh anything that it's exciting right now Um I actually uh speaking of Hot Sinatra which you can get now from Amazon or any other online retailer very well rated and uh, it's exciting and funny and I think it's just a pretty cool story Yeah uh, I'm going to eventually be doing a, another book about the same characters. There is uh, a couple of stories that come from that same universe. One of them just came out from uh, Big Pulp. It's called Clones, Fairies, and Monsters in the Closet. It's uh, an LGBTQT, whatever that moniker is, collection. That's also available on Amazon. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, an article and a book of essays about the Big Lebowski uh, that's called Lebowski 101. It's not out yet, but it should be out any day now. And yeah, just uh, keep your eye on AxelHowerton.com or the Facebook page, which is V with two E's, Axel Howerton. This is uh, this is the kind of enthusiasm that that keeps independent artists uh, going. It, it certainly was so nice to to get your reviews of my films in the past. I I love checking in with you now and again. Uh, I love how active you are, and uh, and thanks so much for talking to us. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for uh, having me on here. It's a, it's a thrill to chat with uh, with an artiste like yourself. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. I'll send you, I'll send you a copy of my book. Yeah, please please do. I'll I'll, uh, I'll message you my address. <laughs> Giddy up. Take care. Thanks, man. Hey, so before uh, we go, um, I thought I'd fill up just a little bit more time since we ended uh, ended a little bit early on this podcast. I thought I would commit complete social sin and uh, and read one of the reviews that Axel wrote about one of my films, but. Uh, it's a little less gross because it's about 10 pounds. I think this is kind of a funny review uh, because it's really, really nice. And 10 pounds, uh, for all intents and purposes, kind of sucks. People like it, and I like that they like it, but it sucks. So let's uh, let's read it, and I'll, I'll do kind of color commentary. Um, now, if I remember correctly before I start reading this, he I just sent it very cold. I don't, I'm not sure even at the time what kind of information he could have dug up about it. So one of the things I find really interesting is... He's like, it's so easy for him to grab who I was inspired by. And it's pretty dead on. It's, it's kind of interesting. All right. 
I Need to Lose 10 Pounds is the awe-inspiring, shot-on-video, traumatic style, indie equivalent of High School Musical. Okay, we made we made 10 pounds like years before High School Musical. I hadn't even uh, I didn't even know what this was when he first wrote this. And it blows that shitbox family channel juggernaut out of the water. Written by three 14-year-olds, Frankie Frayne, William Fort, and Corey Huntington, and shot for around $1,000 by the same kids over the course of their next, their next five years, I Need to Lose 10 Pounds tells the story of Miguel Poddington, the very likable Alan Damaris. Now, some people might disagree with that, Axel. A fat crap desperate to lose weight and fit in with the high school crowd. It is a musical comedy in the vein of Trey Parker's Cannibal the Musical. Anybody who listens to this podcast fucking knows Jason McHugh. We're going to have Robert Muratori soon. Uh, like, Cannibal keeps coming up. Uh, and he already said trauma, right? And has the humor inherent in all great trauma films, bodily functions, pimps, boobs, and a goodly dose of social satire. The film includes songs about corn, a goofy-voiced kid brother with leprosy on a quest to slay a mythical beast, condom ingestion, ingestion, laxative abuse, boobaloobas, and Richard Simmons' evil plan for world domination through his fat army. So I actually I thought that was a pretty good sum up, considering that like it's an impossible film to actually describe because it's that fucking disjointed. This could have very easily come off as one more cheap, slapped-together, gross fest of that kind that molds the darkest shelves of Amazon.com vast warehouses. Although, little did Axel know that it would never even, like, make it to fucking Amazon, let alone uh, it'll rot on my goddamn shelf. But instead, the pure joy, exuberance, and godforsaken love that these kids poured into this film are readily apparent and give it an aura of giddiness and effervescence that blur the technical shortcomings in amateur acting and singing and truly makes you fucking believe. (laughs) That's what should be on the back of the box. It'll make you believe. It hits upon real teen issues like bulimia, sexual confusion, isolation, and dealing with clueless, frightened parents who avoid having to talk about things like sex. Uh, this flick, however, does it in a fun, non-preachy, and entirely understated way. That's because we weren't really saying anything at all. Uh, if you got that out of it, it's just like, oh, it was so subtle, but we were fucking just retarded. That makes them the matter-of-fact issues that they are most that they are for most of us. Every kid goes through these feelings and problems, and most of us find a way to cope and move on. This is the first flick in a long time. He put, it's a bunch of O's. That's not me reading it that way. That has played with these themes without getting heavy, sappy, or whiny. It's just a healthy heap. Uh, heaping helping of ripe cheese and teen funk. Um, so this, I mean, that, 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 that's a high praise coming from a dude who watches like nothing but like crap after crap after crap, uh, both from the studios and from Indy where he's like, this is, this is true social satire or something like that. Uh, some of the highlights question mark director, Frankie Frayne in a recurring cameo as a snappy, but deliciously disturbed physician who imparts, I'm delicious, who imparts gems of clueless wisdom in between conspiracy theories and outright malpractice. Co-writer Corey Huntington first as a recurring clerk in various local establishments, uh, aping every Nimrod kid you have had bag your eggs in a, uh, with a seven pound ham. He also plays the Mac daddy, big pimp and silly Wonka master pimp extraordinaire and arch nemesis of Richard Simmons. Now Axel was very kind not to mention that like silly Wonka, one of the main characters in the movie doesn't even show up until halfway through. And when he does, it's for goddamn no reason at all. Um, and the, and uh, this, this next bit 
really interested me. The absolute freaking goddamn hilarious Matthew Zagar as Richard Simmons. The best part about Zagar Simmons is that he eschews all the glaring character traits of the real Simmons and plays the character as a classic melodramatic villain. Snidely whiplash style, without resorting to the flaming voice and flamboyant attitude, just a really cool, bare-faced mustache twirler in a bad red wig and short shorts. Now, I'm glad that somebody was nice to Matt because we were going to like can him on the first day because he was kind of going for all that stuff and we we reeled him back. But I, I, I always thought that he did deliver a funny performance, but every, sometimes people would be down on it. So I'm glad I was. We were all glad to see that. The film was entered in the 2006 Troma Dance Festival, where it outgunned hundreds of other low-bud films to win a distribution deal and a full-meal Troma Team video release, which will be available soon. Oh, if that doesn't fucking depress you, nothing will, because it never goddamn made the light of day. If you're in the mood for some something B-movie campalicious without being overly gory, trashy, or pretentious, yeah, I suppose it's none of those <laughs> uh, you could not possibly do any better than this little gem created by a few kids with big schemes huge hearts and a little help from their friends I loved the hell out of this thing it reminded me of what it was like to be an 18 year old movie geek with a camcorder and unrestrained ambition I hope Fran and his pals make another 10 just like it I have his next flick Abo the Hugh Monkey queued up for a week or two from now so look for that review coming soon for now you can order copies through Fran himself so that was really nice so, uh, and I thought it was a nice little piece of writing. Um, the other films, I like Abo a lot better, and I like Sexually Frank a lot better than that. So, uh, uh, th- th- those reviews make a little more sense to me than this one. But I thought this would be fun to share. But I'll catch you next week on Discount Film School. Uh, I don't know who's up next week. I haven't recorded anything yet. I think it's going to be Ted Stanford from uh, the Dead Harvey Film Blog, which is like a cool horror film blog that uh, that highlights like a lot of indie horror directors right now. And, uh, and I, I did some writing for them. So, uh, look forward to that and take care.